0: to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. When you travel with G-Adventures, you do more than just see the world. You experience it. Sure, their small group tours take you places, but they also help you see them in a different way. That's because G-Adventures believe Travel should challenge you to understand that our world is bigger than you could have ever imagined. All you have to do is arrive with an open mind. Our world deserves more you. Visit gadventures.com.au for more. Hi there, Nathan here from Dumbo Feather. This month on the podcast, we're sharing a lecture given by former palliative care specialist and now writer and farmer, Stephen Jenkinson. He's someone you may be familiar with from our conversation in the love issue of Dumbo Feather magazine. He's an exceptionally wise thinker on grief, death and belonging. Stephen's latest book is called Come of Age, and he visited us here in Melbourne to share his ideas on ageing and what it means to be an elder in the world today.
1: Well listen, first thing is um, that you can tell by my accent that I'm from slightly offshore. And um, though we probably share something not that desirable in terms of our shared colonial history, Canada and your country, but for all of that it's really important I think for me to begin with a kind of disclaimer. And it's this, um, I worked in the death trade for many years and I found that um, almost involuntarily the clear and running assumption, what seemed to be mandatory in order for people to proceed and speak, let's say purposefully, was the notion that somehow dying was the great leveler. That's the thing that, quote, made us all the same, unquote. And nothing could be further from the truth. Dying is emphatically an autobiographical event, And dying is uh, almost uniformly a consequence of the way that you lived. And unless you're willing to conclude that everyone lives basically the same life the world over, then you have to allow the distinct possibility that dying, far from being the great level or equalizer, in fact is one of the great articulations of everything specific and local and indigenous. And I use the word indigenous simply in its original Greek sense of the term, meaning A place-centered understanding, not a human-centered understanding of things. So um, everything I've learned, not that it's so voluminous, but I should say the meager and paltry um, things that I've come up with in my brief but sordid time on the planet, uh, was derived from a very particular set of circumstances and should not be tried at home (laughs) and and shouldn't be automatically assumed to that I'm making any claims across any cultural or linguistic or racial or historical boundaries because the last thing I would ever want to do is contribute to globalization and it seems to me that the instinct uh, to believe that underneath the skin or underneath something we're all the same might be the epic individual articulation of globalization which I find reprehensible myself. And it's, of course, a war on everything specific and local. So, any comments about uh, uh, to come about elderhood are taken, hopefully, with a grain of salt. I was introduced one time uh, not that long ago, among other things, with a list of intemperate accolades as being a, quote, visionary. And I was sitting there, writhing, trying to figure out how to recover from such an introduction. Because it's, it's slightly overblown, no? And uh, a word occurred to me, which I'm not sure that I invented, but I would, I'd like to claim it, never having heard it before. I got up to the mic and I said, visionary, not likely. Divisionary, though, maybe. And... Uh, so, you're, you know, I'm not the first one to invent the understanding that, you know, you come not to bring peace. In a time that's peace, drunk, it's not real peace, of course, but sort of sedated, drunk, then um, bringing a sword seems to be a moral obligation. Just like in times of sword wielding, bringing peace becomes a moral obligation. The other half of that statement, some of you may know the book, There's good things in that book and it goes on to say I've come to turn father against son and daughter against mother, which is not the gentle Jesus meek and mild that people are generally bargaining for. It's hard on the typical family values arrangement and that's a perfect overture to my understanding of what constitutes elderhood, not peace but the sword when early draft of this book got leaked out it turns out it was by me though I was looking for people to blame I'd, <laughs> I'd inadvertently done it myself <laughs> and I was generally reminded by my staff of one person that I had actually leaked it but um, there was a number of uh, quite vitriolic reactions which is not unusual But the particular nature of this reaction might um, stir you in some fashion. And it went something like this. Uh, One woman in particular wrote, uh, well, another typical Jenkinson exaggeration of the facts. I don't think you can exaggerate what desperate times these are. In fact, you could call exaggeration a moral responsibility of any citizen. That's sober citizenry in action, it seems to me. Calling to arms in some fashion, and another person wrote, and she said, um, "You know, if he took his, if he withdrew his head from his um, <laughs> considerations for five minutes, uh, he may he may have come to the obvious conclusion that um, that there's elders galore out there, but that they're not being turned to, and they're not being turned to because the culture is." Uh, youth drunk, and has been for some considerable time, and it's a shame that he hasn't noticed that. Well, in fact, I have noticed that. I have been around a little bit, it clearly shows. Front view, side view, you can plainly tell. I used to be taller, for example. (laughs) So my point is this, not really to wonder whether or not, at least the dominant culture of North America, you decide on your own behalf, if this seems to be true to you here. But the, youth, the preoccupation with youth and agility and competence addiction, as I've come to call it, and things of this kind, they're, they're the thumbprints of the dominant culture of North America. There's no question about it. But here's the question I would ask that reviewer on your behalf. Do you really imagine that it would be in the repertoire of an elder in a time where elderhood is in deep disrepair to cite the preoccupation with youth, as the principal reason for the scarcity of elderhood. That's what I wondered. And I I wondered, is it becoming of an elder to identify the preoccupation with youth as the principal reason for their underemployment? And of course, I'm suggesting to you in an inflammatory way that I think this would be another example of elderhood on the run, that review, and that excuse. I'd like to read to you uh, in a moment a couple of things from the book. Uh, But before I do, I'll I'll just set it up. It seems to me the stakes are extraordinarily high today. The phrase, at the stake, you may or may not have thought of, actually comes from the act of making animal sacrifice. So there's many a thing at stake, and, and every time any of us are willing to gather long enough to consider the deeply unwelcome possibility that young people have been let down at the most indefensibly moral level by, at this stage of the game, that maybe we're challenged, those of us who are over about, I'll just arbitrarily say about 50 years old, who are in the room today, and I can tell by your halo, even though you're backlit and it favors you nicely. <laughs> I know the demographic is well represented in the room this evening. So I would, uh, if this is the gentlest way I can come to it, is to ask you to consider the real possibility that the childhood that you quote-unquote enjoyed, with all its slings and arrows and out, its outrageous fortunes and all the rest, bears virtually no resemblance to the childhood that's currently on offer to anyone coming into their teens or their 20s. I certainly was born into a time, I'm not sure that it was accurate but it was for all of that rife and and palpable at the time that there was a, such a thing as possibility, and that it was demonstrable, and that it was available, and no such case can be made anymore. And this is a deeply unnerving prospect, if you're willing to consider the real possibility of the changes that have happened in the course of your lifetime are not only irreversible, but um, confoundingly, um, even diabolically cancelling of what your own lived memory as a child actually is. So one example of it would be something like this. I've tried to ready myself for the following possibility. That eventually, and it it subsequently happened, eventually a young person will come up my driveway and their hands will be balled into fists and they're clenched very tight. And the reason that they're clenched is not because they propose to do me any harm, but because they're holding on for dear life to what has become their prized possessions. And in no particular order, their prized possessions, it turns out, follow the following lines. In one hand, is a kind of impotent rage at the grossly, the gross inequity of the world that they're being obliged to be on the receiving end of from the likes of my age and people slightly older than me. And in the other hand, is a kind of principled anxiety that's masquerading as a conscience. And if you put those two things together, principled anxiety and impotent rage, you have a recipe for a culture-wide refusal to hold in any particular esteem, anyone or anything that has preceded you. You may have grown up, I'm sure many of you did, with the, um, the following Allegation. Respect your elders. Most of you remember this one. Most of you were probably held to it as a kind of part of a broader moral code, would be my guess. I'm not sure many of us in this room have a living memory of a time when respect your elders described the prevailing weather. In other words, I think in all our lived lifetimes, basically respect your elders has been a prescription instead of a description. And whenever you have prescribed moral behavior, generally the reason for that prescription is that it's a consequence of the absence of the behavior. So let me just take that observation one step down the the road. In days of yore, you you decide how far back this goes. Um, Respecting your elders was something that happened. Okay. The other half of the happening, I've never had it articulated in my presence. And it would be this. Respect your elders would be your end of the deal. And the elders' end of the deal would be what, though? Simply to be on the receiving end of these accolades? I suggest to you, not at all. The missing half of the description is something like this. Respect your elders, that's your end. And your elders will conduct themselves Respectably. And that's the partnership. And why has it gone from a description of the current order into a prescription for some restitution of some some nominally existing hmm, former attribute? And I'm going to suggest to you a bracing possibility that the, that the partnership has been broken because the second half of the statement has gone errant and has gone awry. And could you demonstrate that, or could you give us an example? Thank you for asking. It could go something like this. During the time, uh, back up one step, many people come to things I do now in the deep into the second half of their life, and especially on this subject. And they come basically expecting two things. One is instruction on how to be an elder. And the other one is affirmation, acknowledgement, recognition, and the rubber stamp and the gold watch that asserts that, in fact, they are the elders that they're seeking instruction in at the same time. So a bit of a tension there, no? And there's an awful lot of resentment when the acknowledgement does not come to pass. See? But instead, I call out the possibility that the elder function has gone essentially missing in action. So this is an elaboration of that allegation. So the people who 25, 35, 40 years ago occupied positions of, let's call it, relative authority in the workplace, who were in the period of the beginnings of their peak income-generating performance years, during the time, the world as we know it was being made. This was, by most global scientists, ecological scientists' acknowledgement, the last time it could have been different, going back to the 60s through maybe mid to late 70s, something in this order. I'm no expert on this, but this is what I hear. feels about right to me. During that self-same period when the world as we know it was being made, the generation that now is asking to be held in high esteem as inalienable and inevitable elders, simply as a consequence of having endured this long, are demonstrably, during their time, when they could have, as a group, as a collective, behaved otherwise enough to have some real and discernible consequence on the world, such that it would not be the world that it is today, is the thing that the kids are grappling with, you see. So if we're going to trot out that tired old horse, respect your elders, we have to complete the phrase, it seems to me, as a kind of moral obligation. And it goes like this. Respect what? That's my overture. Here's my underture. What, what you see me in the inenviable position of doing is I have a project. It's called Being Troubled Aloud About This and I have a method And it goes like this, build a mountain, so it's not easy to do, build a mountain, find a burden to carry, climb. That's what these events all amount to. So I have to make the case that things are not as anyone would hope that they are, and then try to imagine how it's come to be as it is. So, buckle up. I was invited to teach... uh, at a yoga studio outside of Vancouver British Columbia some considerable years ago now you might be able to tell by my general posture that me and yoga don't go back a long way (laughs) and you'd be right about that so uh, the day came and I phoned the organizer who was in his late 20s at the time and he wanted me to talk about this subject and I, I was happy to do it and it was one of the very first times I'd done so And I said, I have a suggestion for how we might proceed a little differently tonight, and here's what it's going to be. Uh, You're going to prepare four or five questions for me, and this will be the evening's entertainment. Don't tell me what they are, and I'll do my best to live up to the uh, considerable achievement that you will generate by your questions. And he was unnerved, but he agreed, basically because I really didn't give him a choice on the matter. And so after a brief introduction, uh, divisionary and all that, then the young man, his name is Ian, um, this was his first question. He said to me, "Um, all my friends are depressed. Can you tell me why? Well, I asked for it, obviously. (laughs) And uh, this is not the time to be cute or to play, uh, you know, to fence. Because he meant it. That he was confessing. And he was suffering. And he was outing his entire demographic all at the same time. And he was absolutely dumbfounded. And at the same time, beyond aggrieved, you might say, grievance stricken. Rather than grief stricken. It's a good distinction to make. So... I grappled for about half an hour trying to answer this question and I'll tell you what I said in a second but I'd like to tell you something that could have happened and didn't and something that did happen which didn't have to apropos of the subject at hand. Here's what could have happened. We have a young man at the front of the room in a talk about elderhood who's asked someone twice his age if this someone has anything to say about the chronic Um, withered phantom limb syndrome of well-being, which has become his generation. And the room has 40 or 50 people my age or older in it. And here's what could have happened. Someone of that age group, at some point in the proceedings, could have stood up, not asking permission, really, but simply stood up, And if they were able to move their chair, let's imagine that they did so, and they brought it down to the front of the room, and they sat down beside him, and they addressed him. Not very professionally, but it went something like this. Listen, I heard your question, and the honest answer is, not only do I not know why all your friends are depressed, I'm not sure I even knew that it was true, that all your friends are depressed. And that makes me deeply unnerved about what else I don't know about your life and times, even though we appear to occupy the same time and the same world, which is clearly not so. But this older person could have said, one thing I know for certain, that tonight at least, though you may sit up here at the front of the room depressed and without explanation as to why, you will not sit up here depressed and perplexed by yourself. You're going to sit up here with me sitting beside you, neither of us knowing quite what to do. And that would have been an epic victory of the evening. And you know what I'm here to tell you. Nothing of the kind took place. Instead... The older people in the room took this, especially my response to it, as a kind of indictment of sorts. And they assumed all the nonverbal posture that we've all come to recognize as defensive and so on. And they kept as far away from him and from me as they could, as if his despair and my agitation on his behalf were both contagious. And they had no intention of being afflicted. Because they were seeking a way out of their own affliction, you see. And they had no interest, really, in being of service. And here's what happened instead. Finally, an older man had enough of all of this. And he put up his hand and he said, listen. He said, I'm a perfectly good grandfather. I Skype my granddaughter every week. That was the case fully made. (laughs) Now... I say this with no derision, okay? But I'd like to point out something beyond the obvious poverty of the responses that evening. And it's this nobody that entire evening in a discussion about elderhood ever talked about being a grandparent. Certainly I didn't. He had to bring it up. He brought up grandparenthood because, in his understanding and in his estimation, they're the same thing. And that's what I'd like to point your attention to. That in a culture that is is afflicted by the notion that the family unit is the principal building block of culture and stability and civilization as we know it and so forth, be not surprised that the function of elder and the presence of grandparent are conflated and mistaken one for the other. I'd ask you to consider this possibility instead, that grandparents, by virtue of being a particular young person's grandparent, are disqualified from being able to function as an elder in that younger person's life. And I'll go a little further and suggest to you why. Because it goes like this. How did you become a grandparent? What did you do to fashion for yourself this remarkable little niche job? You know what the answer is? Nothing. You didn't do anything. Somebody else did something. (laughs) Didn't they? Yes. Your blood kin assumed the position, (laughs) took upon themselves the horizontal mambo, and nine months later, you're a grandparent. You did absolutely nothing, basically, to acquire this identity. And that's exactly my point. Because elderhood is nothing but doing everything you can to qualify for the function. And grandparenthood is the inevitable consequence of someone else's extracurricular activity. All right, a little dramatic reading, as dramatic as I can manage given the fact that I wrote it. This is a little take on the world as it stands right now. If you have teenagers at home It's a rough ride, no? If you have teenagers at home, uh, first of all, it'll pass. That's the first thing to reassure you about. But here's the next thing. How many times have you engaged in a a talk? Oh, that was not a good idea. You're going to have a talk, right? So you assume that talk face, you know, and the kid knows what's coming next, which is you're going to do a lot of talking. And you're going to wonder why they're not talking. And the answer is because you are. Basically, that's why. (laughs) And of course, what happens is you have an issue. But really, the issue is... (laughs) The kid, and the kid's very clear on this matter too. And so your, your basic, see the whole enterprise and the whole, you could say, the phenomenological trajectory of the event is all dictated by the seating arrangement folks. And generally speaking, the seating arrangement in any circumstance that involves a teenager goes something like this. You mean well by the teenager, so you're going to face them directly. And then you're going to wonder why they won't do it. They won't face you directly back. And even if you corner them such that they can't go anywhere, they won't give you any face. And you you wonder why. And the answer is because you're sitting at the wrong place. Well, what are you supposed to do? Well, you cannot, if you expect any success in this encounter, you cannot make the young person the object of your inquiry or scrutiny and expect anything to come from it. Okay? So I would give you, I would challenge you to a, a more... Um, confounding assignment. Change the seat until you're sitting more or less beside them. See if you can face what they're facing. Instead of trying to see them clearly, see if you can see what they see when they look out onto this troubled, ebbing world. Because I submit to you in a time such as ours, this amounts to a moral obligation of anyone over about 35 or 40 years old. And you will find it monstrously easier to subject them to your scrutiny than to wonder if you can acquire the ability to bear the vision of the world that they're ab- obliged to bear virtually every waking day. Yeah. So this, these are a couple of observations about that world. It seems to me that much is now hanging in the balance. There are young people, hosts of them, Watching the self absorbed bulge of boomers passing from this mortal coil, bedraggled and betrayed by the old promises of limitless potential and self actualization and personal growth. And they see the retreat centers full of retreating and the gated communities full of retiring, just at the time when everything points from bad to worse, from anger to apathy, from vexation to the vast, vast extinction of what for? A good many of these young witnesses seem full of disdain, and they understandably are, but secretly they seem to be wishing to be wrong about the old people in their midst. Some part of their grievance wants to be wrong, and with no faith that can stand the test of the marketplace, still, some of them seem not quite able of going it alone or of wanting to go it alone, another youth cult, the 60s again. They don't have generations anymore. I don't know if you've noticed this. They don't have generations anymore, because everything's happening too fast. They have decades now, instead of generations. The breathless ramping up of change, of excess and extirpation, of chronic must-havery and limitless gadgetry is driving many of them to polygamy and peyote and the business casual gold star private priority lane of anything. Is there anybody out there? They're asking. Is there anybody to ask? They're asking. How has it come to pass that in an era of more old people per square foot or per square kilometer than the world has ever seen here in the dominant culture of North America, they have so few elders? Has it ever been like this? Where's the wisdom? Has it always been Like this. It is no secret that the West surrendered or abandoned something ancestral and indigenous, something fundamental to its mythic and poetic well-being, when it agreed to be an icon or a mascot for all things civilized and cultural and godly. Its old soul was left in the weeds. It is no secret that the various sojourns into empire-making and slavery and resource exploitation and coercive religious conversion and urbanization and demythologization and rationalism and global market conjuring and world bank manipulation and a few other notable things have come back to haunt the West in these years. And these have burdened whatever is left of its middle classes with coping with refugees and with a ghosted half-memory and a world-class resentful guilt where there was once a conscience that might have leavened privilege with duty. And the poorer classes are left with a chronic alienated grudge that rears up at election time to enthrone a former greatness that never was. And the governing elites are opting for statelessness now. And their only serious allegiance they save for their shareholders and their boards of directors and each other. Okay. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I worked in the death trade. And one of the things I noticed early on, at home we have more dying people per square foot than we have ever had before. And if you quickly ask yourself, why is that? Is it's because people are sicker? It's not really why. The principal reason that we have more dying people in our midst than we've ever had before is because they're not allowed to die on schedule. That's why. You see, there's a backup at the back end of the arrangement. And that's known to you as palliative care or end-of-life care. And that's what's going on there. Now, let's just follow the reasoning for a second. If we have more dying people in our midst than we've ever had before, then it means we have more death in our midst than we've ever had before. And it stands to reason, if that's true, then we have more experience with death, direct, indirect, than we've ever had before. And if we have more death experience than we've ever had before, then it would stand to reason that we have more death wisdom than we've ever had before. Now the logic seems to work, except the conclusion at the end. Because it's demonstrably the case, at least at home, that we are one of the most acutely death-phobic cultures that the world has ever seen. At exactly the, and our death-phobia is peaking at exactly the same time that we have more encounters with and exposure to dying than we've ever had. This is an extraordinary observation. And it begins to call in question a fundament of the Western humanist tradition, which is this. More life experience means more wisdom. So I'm going to give you a blow-by-blow parallel to that when it comes to agedness. We have more old people per square foot at home, uh, than, not only than we've ever had before, but that probably that the world has ever seen. And if we have more old people, that means we have more old among us, more agedness among us, than we've ever had before. And if that's true, and it is, then we have more direct encounters with age. You, you, you can follow where this is headed, No. And if all of this is true, we must be the most age friendly era that the world has ever seen. So I'll pause with the reasoning long enough to ask you a question. In days of yore, the proliferation of old people in your midst meant two or three very clear things. One was you had a reasonable and assured food supply. Because the up and down of food supply attacks the very young and the very old very quickly. Right? Okay. The other thing it meant is you probably weren't on the run. You were probably living a fairly stable circumstance. And the overarching reality that was a consequence of the proliferation of older people in your midst was that an unchallengeable sense of well-being that all of those grey heads among us mean that we're getting it, that we figured it out. They are the palpable sign that our humanity is waxing and our capacity to be human in a sustaining and sustainable way is now manifest among us. And that's what their presence means. And I submit to you that this is one of the principal reasons why in every stable culture, the willingness to to not only ratify but hold in considerable esteem older people is basically cultural self-interest because it reassures the culture that it is in truth a culture. Is that what the proliferation of older people in our midst means to us today? Ask the younger people what it means to them. And I dare say you will not get anything like the answer that I just gave you. So, here's another piece. Because it would be the mark of a grown-up, surely, to not hanker after solutions nearly as much as to be willing to learn how things got to be as they are. And it's the mark of an escapist, white-light fascist to seek after solutions at the expense of inhabiting the present moment. It's not very delicately put, but (laughs) there you have it. It used to be that age was held in some esteem, considerable esteem even, as the concentration of life experience. And life experience and its many lessons were once the fundaments of personal and cultural wisdom. It stands to reason then with this many old people around, We should be awash in the authentic, time-tested, gray wisdom that should emanate from them. And there should be cultural initiatives to expose the general population to this accumulated wisdom. And this should deepen the culture's sanity and its capacity for sustainable decision-making. And that should make us all ancestors worth claiming by a future time, now that we have come to our elder-prompted senses and begun to proceed as if unborn future generations deserve to drink the distillate of our wisdom and our sustainable example. At the very least, the distillate of aged wisdom should balance the burden that older people clearly are to the culture and balance the books and old people should have worth as they might once have done and the culture should break even on having them around. You'd think that this is an inevitable result of an aging populace in a civilized place. We should be smarter and deeper and wiser especially wiser. I don't think the problem is that young people or middle-aged people are not attuned to this wisdom of age. Nor because it has for the moment escaped them or passed them by. It's because they can see aging in North America for the shell game that it is. They can see, hell, anyone who wants to see it can see that this concentration of resources in caring for old people is not the inherent nobility of age Finally, getting its due recognition. They can see that it is a coping strategy. That's what old folks' homes are continuing care facilities. They're coping strategies for a culture that's going under. They can see that our way of aging is a trauma. And that 50 years on, the culture is still singing that juvenile, jet fueled jingle. I hope I die before I get old. So, of course, I'm suggesting to you that experience is not equal wisdom. That's the great dilemma. I saw a bumper sticker in New Mexico one time, and the bumper sticker said, oh, no, not another life experience. <laughs> so experience and wisdom ain't the same thing. If it were, we'd be fine. We'd be more than fine with an aging population. Like I said, we'd be awash in this stuff. I've never heard anybody say, man, if there's any more wisdom comes around, I don't think I can handle it anymore. (laughs) Let me propose to you something. I'm going to turn the corner a little bit, (laughs) not towards relief. (laughs) Something. And suggest to you this. It would reasonably be the mark of a particular generation. I'm going to use the word generation. To be demarcated not by the 60s, or the 90s, or any other such thing, fabrication. But actually, that a a generation is a generation by virtue of the spirit project that has come to claim it. Overture. Can you inherit wisdom? Slow down. (laughs) I, I know the feeling is involuntarily. Of course. How else do you come by it? Funny you should ask. I actually have a suggestion on this matter, but let me start with the allegation that you inherit wisdom. I would ask you to consider the following possibility. You cannot inherit wisdom. It is not in the nature of wisdom or inheritance for them to be able to work together in any reasonable functioning way. Can you, on the other hand, inherit prejudice? That's the only way you come by it. That's the overture. Have you ever heard anybody fret over their prejudice? Over their bigotry? Have you ever heard anybody say, you know, I've been noticing I'm backsliding on my bigotry. I, I used to be pretty good at it. Now I've, it's kind of I lost my way. You know, I just... It is in the nature of bigotry and prejudice of all kinds to do what? To walk out the door and be instantly affirmed in your darkest vision of that which you are prejudiced against. Isn't it true? Of course it's true. You don't need any proof. Being alive legitimizes your prejudice because you acquired it so early on that it defies your capacity to challenge it. You see? It's astounding. Wisdom, on the other hand, needs nothing but travail. It's a labored over proposition. You cannot inherit it. I'll go further and suggest to you that it might be in the nature of wisdom to be only sight-specific. That there's nothing global or eternal about wisdom. That all wisdoms arise from the troubles and the travails of their time. And that brings me to the allegation of generations then. I would ask you to consider the following possibility that each generation becomes a generation by virtue of, of a kind of spirit work that is pressed upon it by the troubles of the times that it inherits. So this spirit work, what do you mean by this? You mean spiritual? No. Spirit work, the travail of the spirit, the individual spirit? No. It's a generational thing. So, you could imagine it this, that each each generation's time is characterized by particular dilemmas. I've tried to articulate some of the current ones in the early going here today. And I would ask you to consider the next possibility that the troubles of our times, far from disfiguring us to the point where we have no capacity to function, are actually the summons and the plea that the world is making on its behalf, directed specifically. To us, not eternal, not universal, not always been there. Particular, as we are, born to a particular time. No capacity to inherit the wisdom of past times, but very capable of inheriting the willingness of the generations past to undertake their Spirit, work. It's not the content of the work that we inherit. It's the example of it undertaken that we inherit. That's what I'm asking you to consider is the root condition of cultural wisdom in any given time. So what happens then if a given generation refuses, to take up the spirit work or is not alerted to the fact that there is such a thing? Does it simply slide down to the next generation? Well, if it does, then the next generation inherit what from its predecessors? The answer is the undone spirit work of what preceded them. And this becomes the fingerprint of their time instead of what the world is asking of them. And what becomes of of a culture after a number of generations where this work is not even imagined, never mind undertaken. And the answer to my mind is the principal inheritance is truancy. And there's a kind of, a germ of shame that begins to accrue around all considerations of those from whom you come. And it's a deeply unwelcome shame But it begins to accrue with the deeply unwelcome understanding that the world as we have it today is a direct consequence of the smeared fingerprints of the generations immediately preceding us who seemed unwilling for whatever reason to take up the work that the world was pleading for them to take up and took up the sword instead or a hundred other instead of You must be alert to this. I'm sure it's happening here. There's an increasing diagnosis of um, neurodegenerative diseases amongst older people. Certainly true at home. Numerically and as a percentage of the population, it's spiking. At exactly the same time that the rate of change in the culture, not just the gadgetry, but the rate of change across the entire culture, is accelerating to the point where the individual human memory is becoming less and less necessary to maintain. I'm suggesting to you that it will be realized that in the time of accelerating rate of change in the popular culture, that older people became the sentinel species that signaled the consequences of that kind of change. Because I'm submitting to you that that's what a neurodegenerative disease is, It has already become a sign of the times because the individual human memory is being eclipsed at the same time that the culture is having recourse to gadgetry instead of memory. How about at the other end of the the lifespan? What do you have? You have younger and younger people being diagnosed with what? Attention deficit disorders. This has become a fact of life in the school system. And public school teachers have to be experts now in treating ADHD. And this is happening at exactly the same time as this rapid rate of change is sweeping everything to the doorstep. I'm suggesting to you that what's happening to the younger people now is that's the equivalent of what's happening to the older people. But in the young people's case, what's being challenged is the former necessity to pay attention and to use the vernacular to give a shit. And that's what's really being observed. It's not attention deficit disorder. It's the unwillingness to invest oneself at that tender age in the distinct possibility that it doesn't matter. This is already coming to pass. So, oh man, how am I going to sum this up? Okay, I'm going to read you a story. So here it is. And you notice I haven't said, here's what an elder is, here's what an elder is, here's what an elder is. Why? Because sometimes you can talk through Elderhood, instead of about it. So, here we go. Personal safety. Heard of it? <laughs> it's a precondition for going out of the house now. Right? It's certainly a precondition for signing up for any self-improvement event. Wait a minute. You want to be a better person? Yeah. And you want to feel safe while you're bettering yourself? Yeah. Well, do you think those two things go together? Yeah. Man, you've been a consumer for too long. (laughs) Okay, so this story is about all that. And I'm suggesting to you that the first casualty of having elders in your midst is the experience and the expectation and the sense of personal safety being your inalienable private right. That elders are so dangerous to the status quo that your capacity to feel safe in their presence is the first casualty of their presence. Whoa. I imagine that at some time in your life you've taught a young child how to ride a two-wheel bicycle. Now you'll recall the posture of the thing. You bent over, one hand on the handle and the other on the back of the seat, steadying. And the rider barely on the seat, all askew and akimbo, and destined to wreckage without your ministrations, barely touching the pedals, the child knowing none of this and you knowing all of it. But you move the whole operation forwards anyhow with pronouncements, demonstrably false pronouncements, that the child is doing a good job. (laughs) Although no rumor of the wonder of balance has presented itself yet to him or her, but that does not in any way slow your willingness (laughs) to corroborate the lunacy of self-esteem. And you know in your heart that the child has no idea at all about the enterprise of balance. But this does not prevent you from saying, good job. Encouragement, friends. Encouragement that's dissociated from merit. Think about the formulation. Encouragement disassociated from merit is the order of the day now in many of our dealings with children. Children. Afraid, as so many of us seem to have become, of crushing for all time that fragile crust of ego, unwilling to risk their disapproval. And that's what happens when you enthrone the inner child. The inner child becomes the vice-regent of a world free of its depths. And you, well, you are their court jester, a yes-man or a yes-woman, angling for uncritical positive regard unalloyed, free-floating praise, unattached to any accomplishment. This seems to be a precondition for accomplishment in a time like ours, so addled as it is become by symbolic venture and symbolic victory and platitude and allegory. And none of this would have reached the stage of tin can encouragement had that child not wrung from your soul a blood oath, a vow so incontrovertible and inviolable that it would seem to come from the time when the desert saints came down from their caves and visited the town squares and stilled the gaggle of opinion and conviction just by standing there. The child either extracted this oath from you or you, helpful to the end, offered it unsought. And the oath? Of course I won't let go. And having made that vow, you are now in hell. You agreed to the oath. Why? In order to get the child on that swaying seat. Understandable. For all the right reasons, we do the wrong thing sometimes. But the necessity of your hand remaining on the seat, that's only fleetingly dictated by the mechanics of learning balance, usually. The lion's share of the meaning of that hand on the seat is emotional and symbolic and moral. If you swear not let to, to not let go, you corroborate what? The child's vision of mayhem and crash landings. And you corroborate their view that you have the power to spare them. And that you will. And that you should. And by swearing, you are colluding with their utter refusal to fall. Or to fail. Which is to say that you're colluding with the refusal to learn how to ride a bike as they pretend to ride it. As you pretend that they are. Now clearly most people learn the happy medium of balance. How? By straying into the weeds of imbalance. On bicycles and in life. Balance is mute. Imbalance. Tells you where balance is. Falling is the teacher. Failure is the tutor. It doesn't make things better, it makes them so. Well, that sounds right. That doesn't sound like Aesop at all. That sounds like life. On the other hand, though, there's this iffy business of letting go, isn't there? Of course, you do your best to calculate the moment of doing so if you do so. For maximum gain, minimum tears, lots of ego affirmation, no gravel in the knee. But how does the child find out that you have let go of the seat? Almost uniformly in the early going, it's because they keel over. And so the hell of the thing is that the right thing is not that obvious anymore. There are two betrayals available to you once you have made your oath, and you will perpetrate one of them. The child believes you when you promise not to let go. And they get on and you go along for a while and sooner or later you know that if you break your oath, please listen to the formulation now, you know sooner or later that if you break your oath, they might get to learn to ride a bike without you back there underwriting the whole affair forever. And that's the first betrayal. Having given in to the child's version of security to get them onto the seat, you for the sake of their learning and the subtle life lessons that you hope are in the mix, you betray that childish understanding of security and promise and unerring adult fidelity. And you let go. And you must let go. And when you do, you will sooner or later have to endure their calumny and their ignominy and their rage and their shame and hurt. And you do so frankly for their sake although that fidelity is utterly lost on them. And this takes some discernment and some courage on your part, some willingness to go ahead without any understanding to coming to the child as to why they fell, as to why you let go, as to why life can be so strange sometimes, and how love can be so confusing. Otherwise, you keep your promise. And you go along, maybe for hours, telling the child that he and she's riding the bike, you know that he or she is not. As if enough misrepresentation of the state of things will actually change the state of things, which is actually what the news is now. The falling never happens, or at least it doesn't happen on your watch, or it's so controlled that re entry is genteel and confidence is never tested. And you keep your promise that you don't have to endure that look of pure violation. Maybe the whole thing can unfold without falling down. Well, maybe. But the chances are just as good that you keep the promise you made. The second betrayal is at hand. You betray them by keeping your promise. And that child goes off into their teens or their 20s and beyond with you still holding the seat. Collusion in that fidelity. The child pretending to ride and you pretending to respect them. Now if you think this is only about teaching kids to ride a bike two little paragraphs and we're done those unfallen children which is a beautiful rendering of what they are have become unfallen children what do they become later in life they become consumer groups and special interest groups and we are rife with them now and they love the internet the marketplace of grievance. And troubles come as troubles do, and the understanding of promises kept no matter what, an understanding that is only proper to childhood, deepens into their middle years into a kind of faith a faith that the rules apply, that you get what you deserve, that if you stay between the lines, you win, that God loves your country that there are good guys, that the good guys win, that you're the good guys. And lo, those children will grow old, some of them, and the world around them and its troubles will remain unaddressed and untempered by that crazy faith. And that faith will sooner or later look like paradise unfound and unsought, more like a dereliction of duty, And young people one-third their age will come to them then with that bewildered sorrow that has so much principle and so much anger in it. And they will be looking for one human example of grace under pressure, of a conscience tethered to the troubles of the times. And what they will get is this cant of faith, that fate or goodness or life or the white light, or the big guy is steadying the seat. But the seat isn't steady, and things are getting worse, and the aged among us look blindsided by their changing bodies and by the implacable rate of change in the world around them, and they look betrayed by the unkept promise that the world seemed to have made to them when they were young and upright in the seat, that it would all work out, and aging becomes the siren song of humiliation and trivialization instead. And random has become the best adjective. And there are no reasons. And dying is an insult. And endings of all kinds are unbecoming to us. And frailty is to be turned away from and to be embarrassed by. And so it strikes me That this is what life practice of the deepest kind must be. A kind of love that betrays what would betray it. A kind of love that betrays what would betray love. And it strikes me that this is exactly what elders do. Or that this is what they are. They will betray whatever would betray life. In a time of unconquered naivete... In the domain of the inner child, that makes elders a dangerous proposition indeed.
0: Stephen gave this lecture for the School of Life Australia. Big thanks to them and to him for sharing this content with us. Lizzie Martin edited this episode for us. Thank you, Lizzie. And Dennis Liu composed the music you hear. Thanks, Dennis. Get your eyes on issue 54 of Dumbo Feather magazine for our conversation with Stephen. Or better yet, you can subscribe from anywhere around the world. And we'll catch you next month for more great Dumbo Feather listening.